It seems that these old cards were conceived deep in the guts of human experience, at the most profound level of the human psyche, and it is to this level in ourselves that they will speak. Yo, from the kingdom of Ohio, you are listening to O Culture, where the Wheel of Fortune has fuck all to do with Pat Sajak, although Vanna White can spin this wheel anytime. I am your host, Ryan Peverly, the Hierophant, helping guide you through your fool's journey. Welcome to the show, thanks for hanging. And what a show it is this time around. Susie Chang and Mel Moline are in the house. Susie and Mel are the wise and wonderful hosts of Fortune's Wheelhouse, one of my favorite podcasts, which is a fool's journey in and of itself. Susie and Mel are in the midst of breaking down the esoteric correspondences of all 78 tarot cards found in the Rider-Waite-Smith deck, Alistair Coley's Thoth deck, and Mel's own Tabula Mundi deck. They're looking at the cards and telling us how symbols from Hermeticism, Kabbalah, and astrology are incorporated into the cards, as well as other correspondences like the Golden Dawn color scales, musical notes, and scents and smells. It's a fascinating and informative podcast, and I couldn't be happier to have them here. We're going to talk some tarot, the quartered cross, the history of cardamancy and other oracular games. There's even some Lebowski thrown in for good measure. And we give you guys a taste of how Mel and Susie break down these esoteric correspondences by doing a one-card reading for yours truly. So enough of my long wind, let's give this Wheel of Fortune a spin and make this moment both oracular and spectacular. Enjoy! Susie Chang. Hi, Ryan. I'm the one who ums. And Mel Moline. Hi, Ryan. I'm the one who mispronounces things. Thank you guys for being here. I really appreciate you taking the time to hop on the call with me today. Uh, we're thrilled to be here. Thank I you am for anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Now, you guys host a podcast called Fortune's Wheelhouse. We will get to that in a minute. But before we do, I would love to hear your individual journey stories. Because when I listen to your podcast, you guys are obviously so well-versed and knowledgeable in terms of occult topics and philosophies. And... <laughs> You're making a snort. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true, though. It's true. I think if anybody who has heard your show to this point, I think they would agree with that. So let's start with you, Mel, if you don't mind. Tell us a little bit about, you know, how you got to this point in your life. When did you first discover tarot? When did you first discover, I like to call it, this magical world that you live in? Yeah, a long time ago. It started when I was a child. Pretty much my earliest memories were of sitting at the table eating cereal. And uh, as I mentioned on our podcast, my mother had painted a huge wall-sized version of the Wheel of Fortune from the Rider-Waite-Smith deck. 
And I used to just sit there, eat cereal in the morning, look at it. And I started reading, believe it or not, esoteric texts then. I was probably five, you know, (laughs) plucking them off the bookshelf, reading the I Ching and astrological texts and things like that, just because it interested me from day one, apparently. You know, I can't imagine growing up in an environment like that. My childhood was completely different. You know, the traditional, I think, non-spiritual, non-religious American household. What was your interaction like, Mel, if you don't mind? What was it like with other kids your age when you were growing up? Like, did they know about your parents' interests? Did they treat you a certain way? I'm just curious how that sort of... I don't think they they knew about my parents' interests. And I don't even know that I can say that, you know, my parents had a huge interest in that. It wasn't like a part of their daily lives or anything, but it was there and available to me. And as far as, you know, I was definitely an odd kid and and treated as such. So Susie, I'm not going to steal the whole, were you a weird kid line that Gordon (laughs) White uses, but do tell us a little bit about you know, where you first discovered the esoterics. So I was a really, I was a closeted weird kid kind of a thing. So, you know, I, unlike Mel, who has been doing this from the point of consciousness, pretty much, (laughs) you know, I I didn't, I came to it in a much more conventional way later in life as a, uh, in college, I had a, someone in my dorm had a pack of tarot cards and I just thought that was fascinating. But, uh, but I was so repressed that there was, you know, no way I was going near that. So uh, it's a pretty typical story for a lot of us. I think I finally got around to it in my 20s and like mm, around 23, 24, I started trying everything that I, you know, had been afraid to try before I started playing the saxophone, I started ballroom dancing, and I started reading tarot. And I think it was it was a way of trying to break out of that sort of cerebral headspace that uh, I felt like I was expected to perpetually dwell in. And I think it really saved me in a lot in a way, because, you know, like a lot of people... I think that you get kind of in this frame of mind where you believe there's nothing out there except for what's created in your mind or the material world around you. And it's a really unsustainable way to live. And I think tarot really helped me sense that there was a connectedness to the world and to myself as well. So, you know, I mean, I think as a as a person who deals in alchemy, you know, you have that sense of the the world of matter and the world of spirit being continuous. And that's what tarot did for me. Yeah. And let's stay on that for just a second. I'm going to ask this to both Mm -hmm. you guys. So answer however you like. But when was the first experience with tarot where you realized there's something to these cards, there's something to what they're describing about the world I live in or about myself? Was there a seminal experience, I guess, you know, from your youth or your 20s, your young adulthood that actually made you take it a little more seriously? You want to go first, Mel? No. (laughs) (laughs) I'm thinking. I can tell you one experience I had, which was very, very early on with tarot. You know, I I think like it's so hard when you're starting out in tarot to have a sense of what you're supposed to be doing with it, where the meaning comes from. And, you know, I was just kind of trying to go about it in an academic way, which is sort of my approach to everything and memorize everything I could you know, just from looking at the cards. But in terms of interpretation and in terms of like that sense of connectedness and and the divine and divination, I really, really didn't trust it. And I didn't feel like there was anything going on. And I remember early in this journey, I was on a bus on my way to Cape Cod and I was, you know, looking at the cards and, and I got really fed up and I said, you know, what's the point? 
what's the point of doing this? You know, I don't really understand. I'm not getting anything out of it. I, I'm not able to interpret anything or predict anything. <laughs> and should I just give up? And I remember I decided to let the tarot itself answer that question. Should I just give up? So I drew two cards out of the deck. And they were, this is a Rider-Waite-Smith deck, the one that everybody has. And they were the Magician and the Strength card. And if you know those two cards, they both have the infinity sign over the head, right? So the magician has it sort of floating right over his head and the strength she's bending over the line and she has the infinity sign, you know, floating over her head as she's looking at this line. And to me, that was, it, it just hit me right in the heart, you know, just seeing the sight of those two cards because I felt like everything is possible. You just don't know it yet. Mel, do you have a similar story then? Yeah, actually, Susie's story reminds me when you said, you know, letting it in through the site. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what it was about for me. Like there was more than one time where where that kind of experience happened. You know, one was the, you know, the looking at the wheel card on the wall. But then there was a later time. I don't know, maybe I was nine or ten. And there was, an, uh, again, another large piece of art. This one was based on the Fool card, and it was painted on a giant piece of red velvet. And then for, <laughs> for whatever reason, it had the Eye of Horus up in the corner. And uh, I was really sick at the time. I think I had pneumonia or something. And, you know, burning up with fever, laying on the couch, doing what you do when you're when you're sick, <laughs> and staring at that, you know, that eye painted in the corner of that tapestry. And I don't know, it did something... It, it kind of like burned its way into me where for years after that, I put that eye on everything I owned. I mean, it was like, you know, it was How mine. How old were you then, Mel? Probably eight or nine. And going oh, into neat. my teenage years, I just like adopted that as like my personal sigil or something. And then years later, when I was about 16, I had left home, moved 3,000 miles away from where I lived, it's a long story that I won't tell, but to a place where I didn't know anyone and didn't even have a place to live. And I ended up meeting some people and painting a, a mural on their wall of the magician card with paint that I found, house paint, like outdoor house <laughs> paint that I found in a, in a you know burnt down shed in their backyard. And I painted it on the wall with a piece of carpet that I tore off their carpet and, and it was all, it wasn't the traditional colors. It was greens and purples and blues and black and white. Cause that's what was there. <laughs> and uh, they invited me to live there after that. So it was kind of just, so it was know. really kind of a talismanic work, what you did there. Yeah. yeah. Something, something yeah. like that. And speaking of personal sigils, maybe we should talk about the quartered cross a little bit, which um, you can, uh, Ryan, you can see that Mel has that as her, yeah. uh, as a symbol on Skype. And that's something that's, personally meaningful to both of us. That quartered cross symbol has been part of my life since I was 11 or 12. Then I read, I don't know if you know Susan Cooper's The Dark is Rising series. I, yeah, I've heard of it, but I've not read it. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, they made an absolutely awful movie, movie out of it. But, you know, there's this, there's the idea of this quartered cross that kind of runs, runs through the whole thing. And when I was little, I just, you know, I just completely became deeply attached to this notion of this meaningful symbol. And I would like, you know, take bangles and thread and make quartered crosses and you know, just like the That's little the things so kids do, right? Yeah. 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 And then, and then later on in life, this became really more important to me as, as I began to study esoteric tarot and, you know, the unity of the four elements plus spirit that's represented in that symbol. And then a few years ago, a friend of mine who's a jeweler helped me craft three of these out of silver. And so I wear this 
wear the quartered cross all the time. Mel has one of them, and then another friend of ours has the other one. So that's sort of my story with it. But Mel, you probably have your own your own tales to tell about that. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things you can say about that symbol. It it really is very morphing in what it can encompass because it truly encompasses everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I'll give you a couple examples of that. Susie already mentioned the four elements, you know, united as the in the fifth, but it can also be the four directions of, you know, Lieber Resch, the four quarters. I, I received that symbol, the, the direction, I guess you'd say, to put that symbol on my deck. And I really mm-hmm. don't know where such things come from when you receive something like that but it came and it was right and and it's been proven to be right in so many ways since Mm then I I remember even one time you know studying a little bit about sigil magic and you know I happened to read something about how there's a symbol that has every letter of the alphabet in it and I went and looked up that and it was like a jumbled mess it looked like a pile (laughs) of letter spaghetti you know like and I was like no 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 and then it hit me well no the quartered cross actually you can do it you can do it every every it's it's just yet another example of how it holds everything whether it's the symbol of the earth and the world you know Mm -hmm. or whatever it is and there is some evidence that it is the oldest, you know, abstract, divine, sacred symbol that was used by anybody, whether whatever meaning they ascribe right, to, the, whether you it know, was the, the solar, solar right. the wheel of the sun's chariot, or whatever it was. Yeah, I have wow. a, I have another thing for you on that. Like you, you see that symbol, and I think of well, the Tau cross. You know, that's the, mm-hmm. the universe card, the world, but it's also the fool card in a sense too, because mm-hmm. if you look at it as two letters, it's O X, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's the uh, the Hebrew letter that the ox, ox the fool, ox, the ox, associated with Hebrew so, letter Aleph. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, like I said, it encompasses <laughs> that symbol encompasses, encompasses everything in one way yeah. or another. <laughs> nice. Like yeah, wow. Well, you guys will be interested to know that I also have a long history with the quartered cross. I think, Indeed. yeah, I think I've told this story on a previous episode. I don't remember, but I'll give you just like a, a brief cliff notes version of it. When I was a teenager, I was probably either like a junior or senior in high school. So, you know, 17, 18 years old. I was definitely driving because I had driven a group of friends of mine out to a uh, local urban legend spot near where I grew up. And we were out there for the night and, you know, we were doing what kids do. You know, I don't know if we were drinking or not. I don't really recall (laughs) that, but we were definitely just horse playing, you know, whatever. We came back that night and then I woke up the next morning. This was around Halloween, you know, so maybe mid-fall-ish. I... I had to get up early for some reason on a Saturday, so I, I went out to start my car, and it was, you know, it was sort of foggy, and, and the windows were kind of fogged up, and there were three quartered crosses on my windows. Oh, like, no kidding. There were two on the driver's side window, and there was one above the driver's side on the windshield. Wow. And huh. Did it look as though someone had like drawn it with their fingertip or just sort of like it had a curve? Well, that's that's what I thought, but they were so precisely mm-hmm. drawn that mm-hmm. they were they were perfect. They were perfect like the one here <laughs> on uh, Mel's Skype. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was just very very perfectly drawn. So I warmed the car up, you know, and I was like that's just so weird. And when the fog went away, the crosses were still there. It's like they were emblazoned into the glass. Oh mm-hmm. wow. And they stayed mm-hmm. there until I got rid of that car. So I, wow. I had that car for probably another two or three years. And every time it got 
cold and foggy, like, you know, when your windows would fog up, I could see them very clearly. And then if you looked really closely when it was just a normal day, you could see those crosses in the glass. And no kidding. Yeah, it was the, it was one of the weirdest things I've ever experienced. Back then, I knew nothing about what it meant. I tried to figure mm-hmm. it out later in college. I had met a uh, a pagan, a witch, and she tried to help me understand what it was. And she just told me I had something to do with protection, which I don't know if that's accurate or not. But yeah, it has so, to do with a lot of things. Well, really. yeah, now, yeah, now now I know it has. It's way more complicated than that. But mm-hmm. yeah, it was just you kind of realize. Like I guess I wonder how many other things that I was subjected to or exposed to in my youth that I completely missed, like that. You know. That was the first thing that I can remember from my teenage years that is sort of relevant to what I'm doing now. Yeah, and I think that, you know, when you say that you wonder what you missed, you know, I don't really feel that you lose anything, right? It's all it's all in there somewhere. And I think that our connection with the sacred is something that we construct ourselves. You know, it's an interaction between our own consciousness and what's out there. And, you know, so I don't really think that those memories are lost. They're just encoded in some different way, you know, in your body or in your brain or whatever it is. Yeah, I, I think I meant, though, like, what other things did I see that it just didn't mm. resonate with me or that I don't recall, you know, like, were there mm-hmm. other symbols mm-hmm. like that, that that were around that, you know, where the universe or how do you want to look at it was trying to send me a message that I just completely missed, you know, so, but to your point, yeah, I, mm-hmm. I understand that we kind of see what we see when we're meant to see it, right? That's the thing, yeah. I think I think you never know, but that in retrospect, it all makes sense, you know, and, and the way that you perceive the world now is a product of everything you experienced before, even even the things you don't remember and the things that didn't make sense at the time. Definitely, yeah. So, you know, speaking of connection to the sacred, tell me a little bit about how you guys met. I think that's a cool story. <laughs> so, Mel, you want to tell the story? No, you can you can tell it. Okay. <laughs> okay, so I'm trying to remember back to where where it first started. So so Mel, you'd been working on Tabula Mundi Noxet Lux, right? I think yep. this was in 2000, 2014, 2015. So so Ryan, as I mentioned, for basically 17 years since I had discovered tarot, I had been essentially in the closet about it. I you know, I'd done some gig reading right at the beginning, but then I just just went very, very quiet about it for a long time. And then at the end of 2014, I started, you know, hunting down social media sites and sort of reaching out. And apparently there is this whole world, you know, this huge online tarot community. And I made a very good friend there, our friend Peter, or Spiffo, as he's known. He's in Perth, Australia. And, you know, we got to chatting. And one of the things we talked about, of course, was the decks that we were into, because that's what tarot people do. We obsess about which decks we're collecting and so on and so forth. And he was telling me about about the Rosetta Tarot, which is Mel's previous deck, which he used a lot. He, he really loved it. And he was telling me about it. And then he said, oh, and she's got this new deck that she's working on called Tabula Mundi, Nox at Lux. And I was like, oh, I love black and white decks because, he, you know, Nox at Lux, it was um, dark and light, night and day. And I realized it was a black and white deck. So he kept showing me pictures from it. And I was like, can you show me that? And can you show me this? And can you, you know, and can you, can you show me the three of wands? Can you show me the six yeah. of wands? You know, can you show me the moon, et cetera? And he was, I was driving him nuts. And, uh, and he's like, you know, you should really, you should really look at this deck. You should get it. You know, by the way, the artist lives in Massachusetts. <laughs> he's telling me this from the other side of the world. And, uh, and then eventually he even had, he actually had Mel send me the deck. Wasn't that at the end of, 
2014 was it mill or was it was it no if it was the full deck it wouldn't have been till 2015 because 2015 then, right. yeah 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 that's right so it was end of 2015 and you know and i got the deck and i it was, was just blown away just completely completely blown away and the other thing that was crazy about it was that at the time i had been Really, I have I have this hobby horse, or we both do, really, uh, about the minor arcana and about the ways in which they're astrologically related to the major arcana. And uh, you know, so I would like lie around just you know thinking about, say, the 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 six of swords, which is Mercury in Aquarius, and how it's related to the magus or magician, which is associated with Mercury, and uh, the star, which is associated with Aquarius, and. I remember just lying on the couch in a fever one day thinking about it and, you know, and trying to write about it. And anyway, so the thing that was so crazy about this deck of Mel's is that she was doing the same thing. She had this, she had, you know, incorporated elements from her major arcana into the minor arcana. And, you know, I can't think of any other deck that does that explicitly. And anyway, so what was it that I was trying to do? Oh, yeah, I got in touch with you to tell you how much I loved this deck. And then I started, I was trying to piece together, like, remember, I was taking Photoshop and I was trying to piece together the different decanic minors <laughs> into like puzzle pieces. You I know. think what you were trying yeah. to do, if I remember right, is in the book that I had put out with the deck, there was like a one sentence There teaser. was a clue, yeah. So yeah, uh, there was a clue saying that I was working on these secret hidden cards, which were going to incorporate the three decans of each sign into one card. That's right. And, and that's all I said, basically. <laughs> and uh, she was trying to figure out what the heck I was doing and, and was sending me these things of these um, different cards. And you came up with some really cool shit, there actually. Some interesting ones. But it wasn't yeah. what I it wasn't, it wasn't what, what I was doing. I was like, you're darn close, but nope. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so that's yeah. And then and then I think we probably we didn't get together and actually meet for a few months after that. I don't remember when we first came to your house, but yeah. And you know, and Mel's husband Pete is is a very talented chef, and I, my my legitimate life has to do with food writing. So you know, there was sort of this inevitable sort of <laughs> food and tarot mind meld that yeah. was due to happen. Well, it's always nice yeah. to be friends with a great chef. I'm not going to lie. I mean, that's that's a nice <laughs> perk there. But uh, you said Massachusetts, like that. that's where you guys live. But it, that's what I was... Mm -hmm. You know, that's the fun part of the story to me is that you had a friend in Australia who yeah, essentially exactly. introduced you guys and you guys were only what, like a half hour or 60 minutes apart? Yeah, 45 minutes apart. Yeah. yeah. And we've never met him yet. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. Um, I don't I don't have a TV or watch TV or even listen to the news much. And he, the other day, when we were having that big storm, you know, he emails me and starts talking about the, the Bumbo Genesis or the, you know, whatever the hell they were calling it. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. He was telling yeah. me my weather from Australia. Oh, yeah, know? he does that. <laughs> yeah, we got a, yeah, I, I saw that the, the the bomb cyclone or something like that. Yeah, bomb sure. cyclone, yeah. yeah. Like, what I had another that? friend yeah. on the West Coast that did the same thing. He starts texting me about this bomb cyclone. And I was like, it was just so weird to me that people thousands of miles away, you know, knew this and I didn't even know it. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, well, yeah. well, I'm experienced. Yeah, yeah. You know, we've all been gifted with great fortune because if you two never would have met, there would be no Fortune's Wheelhouse and my weekly podcast lineup <laughs> would be a, a bit less complete. So I just want to tell you guys, you know, I, 
I discovered you not right away. It was probably maybe 12 or 15 episodes in. and But once I did, I, I quickly, you know, I, I subscribed. It was labeled by me in my head as must listen, you know, every week because... <laughs> You guys have, have such great chemistry and, you know, like I said up front, you're so damn knowledgeable that it, it makes me wonder what the hell I've been doing with my life this whole time. You guys can rattle off Kabbalah like I can rattle off, like, pro wrestling history. It's it's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> but, so, so Where's your a, pro wrestling podcast? Uh, stay tuned. But, you know, I, I do want to tell people a bit about the podcast because that's really why we're here, to, to talk some mm-hmm. Fortune's Wheelhouse and some tarot. And I guess first off, you know, why did you guys start Fortune's Wheelhouse in the first place, because I'll tell you the the format of the show, which we can get into. I'm surprised there wasn't something like this already. It's a fantastic idea, isn't that? Isn't that true? I mean, wouldn't you expect somebody to like go th- card by card through the deck and mm-hmm. you know and dissect each one? And you know, I think a couple of people have tried. Um, it was my idea originally, and uh, and I thought that somebody should do it. And you know, I, I have this problem where I kind of get involved in things and I ask the question, how hard can it be? (laughs) And this is how I end up, you know, doing all this shit. But I looked around and, you know, a lot of people had started and they would either make it through the majors. There's a couple of people who have done you know, full majors podcast. And at first we didn't even know if we were going to do the minors, but there are a couple, there are a couple out there. And then there's some who tried to do the whole thing and just sort of lost interest or you know, just sort of petered out. So, you know, I thought, well, somebody should do it, but I I know I can't do it by myself. And because number one, because I don't know enough. And number two, because things sound better as a conversation, as you know, in podcasts. And uh, and number three, I know somebody. <laughs> so, you know, and I was like, can I, can I get Mel to do this? Can I persuade Mel to get out there and do this with me? You know, so I, I begged Mel, basically, because there's nobody who knows more about this stuff than Mel. And it was just a matter of, you know, her being willing to do it. It's so funny. It's the last thing. Anyone that knows me well in my <laughs> personal life would think this would be the last thing I would ever do because <laughs> I very, I'm very private. I'm very introverted. I don't usually talk much. Uh, so like, <laughs> podcast? Really? <laughs> yeah. But yeah. But when she asked me if I would do it, you know, I was having a, a Mercury and Uranus transit of some sort. And I was just like, yeah, I need to do something different. And that sounds like a brilliant idea. And, <laughs> and I, I said yes without thinking hard about it. And then <laughs> I was like, oh, no, what have I agreed to? <laughs> I've taken over half your life. <laughs> <laughs> and that reminds me, actually, the other time, you know, when we wanted to do an interview with you, uh, Spiffo and I, I remember you had been going on, going through something astrologically where you were saying yes to everything. So, you know, it was just kind of a matter of fate <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so so it really was based on timing then right yeah kind of yeah, yeah. timing was right and it's funny you mentioned that you're introverted i don't gather that from the podcast obviously but the other podcasters in this genre or niche that i've met they all describe themselves as i guess historically in their own lives as being introverted so it's funny to me that and i think i would be the same way although i guess i'm a little bit more ambiverted to be honest if you guys <laughs> think that you can go both ways but you know i i just wonder like why is that and this is not something that we have to yeah. really dissect but it is it is a, a fascinating thing to me that they have all these introverts that may not be comfortable in social settings but put a microphone and some recording software in front of them and they can just go 
Well, this is what's so interesting because, you know, first of all, radio audio is great because, you know, you don't have to dress for it. <laughs> you know, you don't have to like, you have to, don't have to worry about appearances. And, you know, appearances, it's not just the way you look, but when you think in terms of appearances, it puts you in a completely different frame of mind. And, you know, and, and also with Mel, I knew she could do it. I mean, you know, having talked to Mel and had conversations with Mel and, you know, introvert or not, the stuff that you know is... You, you know it, right? And it's just a matter of somebody asking the right questions. And I think for both of us to have each other to bounce questions off of, that's what draws the material out. And I think that's true in podcasting generally. You know, it works best as conversation, as having someone to wonder something and someone to answer it and to have that back and forth. Yeah, and it's kind of great because who else can you really talk to about this stuff, <laughs> exactly. right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I've I've toured with the idea of doing some solo shows, but then I'm also like, well, who the hell wants to hear me talk on my own for 45, 60, you know, 90 minutes? Like that to me just sounds really boring. I prefer the... Well, that's yeah, isn't it funny though? Yeah. I mean, cuz the thing is you you you're interesting enough, you've got the material, but there's something about hearing somebody else ask that makes it makes the magic happen. I mean, you know, I hear solo podcasts all the time too, and it's like they're just not the same. Even like a completely shitty conversation is more interesting than a brilliant monologue i don't know why that is <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's an interesting question like we don't have to answer that right now but it is good food for thought why why is that yeah, I guess because it's not, you know, I think it just makes you feel like you're part of it because you either reflect, you know, you're either projecting or you're identifying with the people in the conversation as a listener, right? Yeah. So it makes you part of it. Well, you know, I mentioned the uh, the structure of the show earlier. I just wanted to give our audience a, a bit of a, a taste of that. And you sort of touched on it, you know, where you're, you're going through each card in the deck, uh, starting with the major arcana. Each card has its own standalone thing. It's not like you do like four cards in, in one show. They're they're each by themselves. So you, you dedicate a good chunk of time. You know, they're probably like 45 to 55 minute shows mm -hmm. for, for each card. So do tell everybody a bit about the actual content of each episode. You know, how do you break down the cards? What sort of information do you guys throw out there? We do have a format. We do have a set format, and it's it's a little different for the majors and for the minors for a couple of different reasons. But the majors, basically, we basically go through the Golden Dawn correspondences. So the, the idea of correspondences in tarot is that, you know, with each card, you're not just getting the picture on the card, right? You're getting a chain of associations that extends back through time. And people have used, this is something that happens whenever you get magical minds together you get this sort of syncretistic blend of astrology and kabbalah and uh, and lots of other element numerology all sorts of other elements and you know they've been ascribed to the tarot cards individually in different ways but we work with the golden dawn correspondences because that's what underlies the rider waite smith deck and the thoth deck so you know anyone who uses rider waite smith or thoth is in one way or another, picking up on those correspondences, whether or not they realize it. I believe you can certainly use those decks without knowing anything about, you know, the astrology or the Kabbalah or, you know, any of the other stuff. But from our point of view, anyway, it, it just enriches the experience. So we usually start by talking about the hermetic title of the card, because uh, that's something that, you know, the Golden Dawn came up with these wonderful titles for each of the cards. And they're so evocative, at least they're for so me. They're so evocative, yeah. You know, I can absolutely. just get a picture in my head when I hear those, the phrases. Yeah, it's one thing to like look at the devil and see, you know, some satanic figure, but it's another thing to think of him, the Lord of the Gates of Matter, right? 
right? <laughs> right. Or to, you know, or to, or to look at, I don't know, what's a good minor to um, say the six of wands, right? You see the guy riding home on his, you know, on his writing in this, this celebratory parade, but it's another thing to know that that's the Lord of victory. Mm, so, yeah. um, so we start with those and then we usually go straight in what we usually go in, into the astrology first. Yeah, we, we bounce around, but I think we try to start with the astrology unless we're led elsewhere. Yeah, because the astrology sort of connects everything with everything else, you know, because which element and which sign and which planet, you know, kind of ties into a lot of the further correspondences. Right. So, yeah, so we start with that and we usually pretty quickly get into the tree of life after that because astrology and, you know, Kabbalah, which is the discipline of mystical Judaism, which has morphed and transformed and been co-opted by Hermetic Kabbalah in later years, and is, which centers around the Tree of Life. Those are the two strains that are kind of most prominent within correspondences for the tarot based on the Golden Dawn. So, so we work with those, and we also go further into the mythology, the implicit mythology of each card, which is a huge strength of Mel's as well, because she, you know, she she has a lot of that in her Tabula Mundi and Rosetta decks as well. And we'll talk about the numbers, the colors, and natural correspondences, and uh, pretty much anything else we can think of. And then we try to wrap it up at the end with sort of a thematic look at what it all adds up to. And we and also with, sometimes try to do a little bit of practical divination mm -hmm. usage as well. But not, yeah. you know, we're more into the side of breaking down and the esoteric elements of the card. But we do try to offer that too, because I think people are looking for that sometimes. Yeah, yeah. we're we were doing a lot more of it in the minors, I think. You yeah. Know? And, uh, and also in the minors, we're also having a real close look at Mel's Tabula Mundi images as well, which was something that people were asking for. So that's mm. a lot of fun too. Yeah, I should have mentioned that the majors focus exclusively on the Rider Waite Smith deck, you know, that, like you said, the traditional tarot deck that everybody is probably familiar with. And then you also bring in Crowley's Thoth deck as well. And then mm -hmm. when you switch to the minors, you did bring in Mel's deck, like you said. So the minors will have a little more depth to it, probably uh, based on that. But are the minors actually minors in your eyes or are they just as important? Oh, no. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, I get hung up on the, the literal meanings of those words. But whenever I read anything about them, I'm like, mm -hmm. these are just as significant as the majors. Oh, yeah, I'd have to agree. Yeah, in we, a way, they're even the more rich and complex, which mm -hmm. you wouldn't expect. Right. I mean, I think that they're, in some ways, just from a normal tarot usage standpoint, I think they're kind of more relatable. You know, I mean, because just if you're if you're a Rider Waite Smith user and you look at the scenic miners that Pamela Coleman Smith illustrated, you can kind of project yourself in there. You see sort of ordinary-ish looking people doing ordinary-ish sort of things. And that that makes it a little bit more accessible. But also, as Mel's saying, they're rich because the, the correspondences are in some ways more complex. And, you know, they tie into the majors and into a lot of stories that are sort of inter interconnected and interpenetrating. They're more something that's within your control, in a sense, and that you can influence rather than this, you know, archetypal energy, you know, like the majors are more karmic, while the minors are something that's in your purview a little that you can work with. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, like, in a reading, when I'm reading for clients, and I see a ton of majors, I'm like, you know, you don't have a lot of control over the situation. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, ah, so, big things are happening. So minors are 
Okay, that's an interesting thing. So miners are more situational cards that where you can sort of exhibit more control over the what they're actually trying to tell you, I guess. Does this make sense? I feel like there's a little bit more sort of mundane agency. Yeah, that's a good of, way to put yeah, it. Yeah, just like in terms of everyday actions you can take, uh, I think miners represent that a little bit better than majors. Okay. Yeah, I think that's what we were getting at when, when I was one of the one of our shows we were talking about the miners as blind forces. Mm-hmm. I think saying mundane agencies is probably a more relatable modern <laughs> way of saying the same thing. Yeah. So we're talking about correspondences and one of my favorite correspondences in tarot is color. Yeah. Color yeah, color is something I've read a lot about in terms of alchemy. I've never given it much thought in tarot until I heard your show. And I'm not sure why, because if it has importance in things like alchemy, it obviously is important in other magical and divinatory practices. So before we get into color and tarot, Mel, I'm going to put you on the spot here first. You mentioned Mm. in our email chain that color is a key to perception. I'm just wondering if you could explain what you mean by that. Well, if you think about, we're talking about the tree of life and how If you're looking at the tree of life, it's a story about light descending and splitting and turning into matter. And if you think about that matter and light, you know, light has no brilliance until it encounters a retina and gets perceived. And this color is this subjective impression that comes in through the eyes and can affect you emotionally and align you with different attributions in how they feel, if that makes any sense. Like, you know, um, I mean, even at a basic level, I think everyone can relate to the idea that you see red like a stop sign and, you know, it creates this sort of sense of urgency inside of you. Yeah, when when you see red, you think of blood, perhaps. And then what are the associations with blood? They can be the feminine mysteries or they can be war and life force and passion. And these things, love and war, are always connected. You know, you look at the Aphrodite paired with Ares, mm-hmm. you know, the, the goddess of love and the goddess of war. And you look at uh, Inanna being a goddess of love and war. And so when you see red, you see both of those things. And you can place it into a context. And if you look on the tree of life and in the cards, where you see red, where do you see that? You see that in Bina, the great mother, you know, in the king scale. And then you see it in all the cards of, of Mars and Aries, the emperor and the tower and all these cards of forces of destruction. So you see it and it plays out into where that color is placed, these associations. The color correspondences for tarot that we're talking about are these uh, these four color scales that the, that the Golden Dawn came up with. You know, and when you use, you don't see it so much in Rider Waite Smith, but you see it in Thoth. Uh, when you use the deck, you you know, you definitely because it's been so deliberately tied into each card, you can really, you know, red always means something coherent across the spectrum of those cards and Mel is has been working with those in her decks and even I think more complete way than 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 Alistair Crowley and Lady Frida Harris did in a way and you know and so that's why she is probably the foremost expert on Golden Dawn color scales that we have today. Really? Wow, that's that's high praise there. <laughs> it's just the facts. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you did reference the Golden Dawn color scales. I'm, I'm glad you did because I had a question around that. And I actually uh, pulled a quote from goldendawn.org. 
I don't know what the affiliation with that website is. I don't, I don't know who they're actually associated with, but they did have an interesting passage on their website about color, and I just want to read it to you real quick. They wrote that the teachings on color in the Golden Dawn is one of the most fascinating aspects which ties to everything else in the Golden Dawn system of magic. One such aspect of the Golden Dawn is the teachings on tarot, which uses the color system to its fullest potential. One could even say that the color system of the Golden Dawn is intrinsically linked with the teachings of tarot. So... My question to whoever wants to field it is is pretty simple then. You know, what is this intrinsic link to the tarot that they speak of and how is it being used to its fullest potential? Well, if you think about colors, they can be split in the same way that the tarot is split into three or four elements, seven planets, 12 signs. Colors the same way. You have the three primary colors, red, yellow, and blue. And then if you mix them all, you get black. Or if you go to the middle of the spectrum, you get green. And those are the, the elemental colors, red for fire, blue for water, yellow for air. Almost air, anyone ex- mm-hmm. instinctively knows that. And then for the, you know, you have seven planets classically, seven classical planets, and then you have seven prismatic colors. So there's an alignment there. And, you know, you can expand that into the secondary colors and get the 12 signs, you know, in the whole spectrum. And because of that intrinsic alignment, Tarot is based on all those correspondences, and each one of those has a color. And color also is associated with sound and feeling and emotion. You know, every color is, has its own tone. You know, some people can even claim to see colors when they hear music. I'm not one of those, but it's all related. That when you pull a card, and if it's been painted with all those colors, on some instinctual level, you're perception becomes aware of those forces and those feelings i think anyway Mm -hmm. for sure is that synesthesia is that what you were talking Mm -hmm. about yeah that's such a fascinating phenomenon to me i I don't i don't know much more about it other than what you said is just that people can sort of i guess they get their senses i I don't know how exactly it works but you know, when when you think about, they call it the color scales just like a scale Mm -hmm. of music oh yeah, yeah and there's an alignment there Exactly. And there, you know, and this is not just Golden Dawn. This is, we're not just talking about 20th century, 19th century. This goes back, you know, millennia, you know, because seven colors, seven days of the week, seven, seven classical planets, these correspondences go back all the way. Right. What they were intended to do when, when the Golden Dawn made this color scale, they were intending to give a means for visualizing these essences of the paths and the Sephiroth a means of even using them for invoking those things. Mm -hmm. So they're consciously pairing certain colors with certain maybe planetary archetypes as well. Absolutely. Certain Kabbalistic archetypes. Yes, correct. They're doing this all to, like I think you said, to evoke a certain, what, emotion? Or what is the purpose of combining all of these together? I think it's just to give your, you can experience, perception is, you know, experiencing something through the eyes. So it's giving you a means to do that. And through all the senses, really. I right, mean, and through all the senses. Yeah. But with color, it's particularly mm-hmm. through the eye. Right. And, you know, I think because there's sort of a through line between these correspondences through the centuries, I, there's a theory. I mean, it's 
it's just a theory, but I don't know if you if you listened to the Rune Soup podcast on uh, on Rupert Sheldrake. He had a conversation yeah. with Rupert Sheldrake, and he was talking about morphic resonance. Do you remember that? And uh, the idea that when you tie in to correspondences or to spiritual material that people have accessed before you, it's not just you, right? You're reactivating that those connections you're reactivating something you're tying into the past you're you know you're in a you're in a line you're in a tradition you're in a lineage that allows you to feel connected with people who came before you and with experiencing this say the energy of mars because you're looking at red and red is associated with mars and it has been for millennia you know <laughs> that you're picking up on something that's greater than your present moment and your present place so i have some color blindedness my life seems very incomplete now. <laughs> Is it red green? Yeah, yeah, it's red mm-hmm. green. It's, it, it's also shades of blues and purples mm-hmm. and things like that. So I could see a real dark navy blue and think it's black. So obviously my perception of certain colors or, or shades of colors is different than the average person's. Mm-hmm. Does this They lend- also say that everyone's perception of color could be that's different. true yeah we, we don't know, know if knowing. my red looks like your red well that's what i was going to ask you guys was is there such thing as objective color or is it all subjective i think it has to be subjective yeah what would be the the purpose of telling everybody that for example this is red and then you know like <laughs> like showing showing colors to kids in in grade school like and saying this is red this is green this is blue this is yellow and so on well, and it so is, forth it is red whether whether you see it as what someone else would call blue, it, to you it's red. But I, I mean, guess what I'm saying of, is, how do we know it's red? What is red? Like, we don't know what red is until we're actually assigned the word with the shade. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think, okay, so there, there there's objective criteria and there's subjective criteria at work here. I mean, you can say that red falls into a particular wavelength, right? And it's what we all agree to call red. But the fact that we agree to call it red is a social convention, and it's also subjective, because we don't, you know, how you perceive it, who knows, but there is a, there's a placeholder in, in our minds for, for that particular uh, wavelength of light. So I'm just, I'm just sitting here bullshitting, man. So <laughs> just no, no, jump no, in no. anytime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What I like about color, too, and and the subjectiveness of it is the same color can be used to convey very different things. It's kind of dependent on context, but also dependent on what it's combined with. So a a great example of that is the color, like a yellow-green color. You can see that color and you can think of, you know, a vernal green of spring and new growth. And you can see that color and think of something putrefying as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, it's the yeah. same exact color. Yeah, we were talking about that in the Seven of Cups at one point. I don't remember why, because we're not up there yet. But yeah, we were talking about that. I think um, the example I like is what uh, there's an artist, a French artist, Eugene Delacroix. He says something like, the quote is something like, give me mud and I will paint the skin of Venus if you allow me to choose <laughs> what goes next to it. Yeah, color is such a fascinating thing to me, you know, because I always argue with people like that there there is no objective color and, and I don't want to offend anybody, you know, but mm-hmm. it, it just seems like if I woke up today with, without having any knowledge of the previous, you know, 33 plus years of my life and not being told that something was blue or red when I was a kid, would I know what blue and red are without having that sort of context? Well, you know, I mean, that kind of 
goes into a whole other area like you know, we are creatures of language and our cognition is not complete without language and language for concepts, right? So, right. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm getting beyond my depth, so I'll stop right there. But uh. <laughs> Yeah, my bad. I, I think that's beyond my depth, too. I don't know why I threw that out there. Um, so let's, yeah, let's go back to another correspondence. You guys have already uh, touched on this, but, you know, both of you have a, a keen comprehension of, of astrology and zodiacal archetypes. And Mel, maybe you could start this one for us, too. And this is, a, again, a, a bit of a broad question, but what are these zodiacal archetypes exactly? You know, where do they come from and what do they mean in terms of tarot? Oh, that's an interesting question. If you think about what is an archetype, I don't think of the archetype as the entity itself, but rather as this container to hold all sorts of things related to it. So the archetype isn't the entity, just like the emperor isn't exactly Aries. You know, it's just a, it's a container to hold all these different modes of consciousness or things from the collective unconscious ideas that resonate within the human experience, I guess you would say. I think the word even, the word archetype means something like the original governor or something like that, the thing that (laughs) starts it. So in tarot, every card, if you start with the majors, every card is either associated with an element, a planet, or a sign. But they're not equal to it. They have this certain plasticity about them where they can embody anything that is within the umbrella of that planet, but not necessarily all at the same, you know, all at the same time, but then they, they, they morph as needed, like language. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I want to, I think an important thing to remember with esoteric systems is that each system is a representation of everything, right? So tarot is a representation of everything in life. Astrology is a representation of everything in life. Right. And how you join them up is you know, in a sense, arbitrary. But there has to be, and I think this is, you know, sort of what Mel's referring to in a way when she's talking about the purpose that archetypes serve, there there has to be a place for each of these things that we perceive in life. And some of them we all perceive and we all have in common. For example, we all have the experience of love or the all have the experience of endings and death. And we need to be able to find every one of our experiences in tarot. So the cards themselves are vessels for those experiences. And everything from, you know, falling in love to tying your shoelace has got to be in there. Same with astrology. So And same with the Kabbalah. Same with Kabbalah. So when we join them up, we're just accepting these conventions that people have set up to say, okay, this is like this is like this. This from astrology, this from Kabbalah, this from tarot. We're setting up an equivalency that, that accommodates this facet of life. Right. But whether you think, you know, and there's a lot of controversy prior to the golden dawn of what goes with what, but the fact is that there needs to be a place that represents the experience of falling in love. And, you know, you'll find it in each of these systems. And there are certain agreed upon conventions where, you know, you'll say that planet Venus is in charge of that, or, you know, or the Empress has something to do with that. But the important thing is that they are each of these systems complete unto themselves. Yeah, it is interesting to me how all of these seemingly disparate systems are all communicating pretty much exactly the same sort of message or embodying the same archetype. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, there, I don't know, I mean, it's just like, there has to be a way of expressing everything in the human experience. And in a way, they're just different languages for saying the same thing. Right, yeah. So, 
obviously then having a uh, having a fundamental uh, grasp of astrology and these zodiacal archetypes gives tarot some more depth and a richer context but how important would you guys say it is to the average tarot reader to have a, a full comprehension of these planetary correspondences? Is it necessary or is it just sort of a nice to know thing? Well, lots of people will have lots of different opinions about that. And I certainly think there are people out there who read purely intuitively and are natural psychics and do that very well. But for me, those are the backbone and the structure upon which the whole system is built. And so for me, I think they're very important, but your mileage may vary. <laughs> and see, the thing is that with tarot, I think this question of tarot, you know, the, the, the problem of tarot encompassing all of life is a difficult one because when you start reading tarot, you realize that there's areas of life you never think about. And if you just go by, say, you know, somebody's little book of tarot references or just what you happen to see in the cards, I don't think it's adequate because you will blind yourself to everything that's out there. I mean, you won't be aware of everything that's out there. Now, I don't think that it's necessary to use the correspondences to be able to read all of life into tarot. However, I do think it's necessary to have some way that you perceive all of life. Some system, it doesn't even have to be an esoteric system. You know, maybe you see life through the lens of art, say, you know, or of music or, you know, or whatever it is that's meaningful to you, but something that allows you to theorize everything around you and take those concepts and then apply it to tarot. You know, it doesn't have to be astrology. It doesn't have to be Kabbalah, but something. So let me take a quick tangent here then, because I, I want to ask you ladies about planetary magic. And Susie, maybe you can start us here. I mean, this is mm -hmm. obviously also related to the greater topic of astrology and these zodiacal archetypes. But what is planetary magic exactly? It's a subject that we haven't really been able to talk about much on my podcast yet. So, mm. you know, what what is that? And how does it relate back to astrology and these these archetypes? And I guess maybe tarot, too. Yeah, yeah. So planetary magic is is an area that's relatively new to me. I've been interested in it for only the last year or so, ever since I started working on my tarot correspondences book. One thing about working with correspondences is that inevitably you get into magic territory. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed this, but, you know, I... Yeah. I I, it's basically tarot was a divination system for me and started being a magic system, you know, as I got more into the co correspondences, because, you know, as you look back through time, one thing that is consistent in the Western tradition is the use of, you know, this uh, sacred number seven, seven, sevenfold divisions of the world, and particularly the correspondences surrounding the seven classical planets. So I was really interested in getting to know natural correspondences a little bit better for my book and also for my work in perfume. You know, that's one of those side side gigs I do. And in the course of doing that, I began to understand more about the way that people have worked with the energies. You know, I hate the word energies, but there really isn't any other way to say it <laughs> with the energies of the planet, you know, through time. And the idea is that you have planets that govern everybody is in a sense of tapping into the energy of the planet simply by using the names of the days of the week. Right. You know, just for a start. So, you know, I'm sure that practically everybody knows that Sunday belongs to the sun. Monday belongs to the moon. Tuesday, most people 
or many people may not know, belongs to Mars and so on and so forth. So why wouldn't you want to know more about how those correspondences go back in time? So if you look at the world in that way, it's interesting to use those correspondences either in acts of worship or in acts of magic. And to me, they're not all that different. So, you know, I think once you start getting involved in ritual, you are tapping into what I, you know, we've talked about this offline, the backstage of reality. And so for me, planetary magic has kind of taken a concrete form in terms of daily ritual. And, you know, with magic, we people usually assume you're asking for something. But to me, you know, the devotional aspects of magic are equally important. So, you know, every day I will start the day with invocation to whichever planet rules the day. I do that using Orphic hymns, the, the Greek Orphic hymns, which I spent the last several months memorizing in Greek as a sort of long-term project. And having a conversation with that planet and trying to propitiate and understand and gain the favor of that planet and in the hopes that it will help you in your life. So I'll give you a good example. Last Friday, Friday is, do you know whose day Friday is? It's Freya, right? Yeah, yeah. And the, and the Greek equivalent of Freya, or sort of the, the Latin equivalent, the Roman equivalent is Venus. The Greek equ equivalent is Aphrodite. You know, and Aphrodite, she is the goddess of what? Love. <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry. I, was just, I thought it Love. was rhetorical. <laughs> <laughs> Love, uh, love, beauty, you know, uh, things that make people beautiful, connections between people, relationships, things like that. And so, you know, so so I do my... Things that are desired. Things that are desired, exactly. So I do my, my, my Venus ritual in the morning and, you know, and go about my business. And, you know, one of the nice things is, well, what happened later on that day was that this online magazine for tween girls which, you know, I would normally have no reason to have anything to do with, picked up my Etsy shop. They said, oh, there are these Zodiac perfumes there. How cool is that? And, you know, and did a little feature on it. And I just ended up having all of these orders, which is, you know, a complete act of Venus. You know, that's that's something that has come perfume is a Venus thing. You know, young girls trying to be beautiful is a is a Venus thing. And whether or not, I'm not talking about cause and effect here. I'm talking about correlation, right? So it happened to be a Friday. It happened to be under the charge of Venus. And this thing happened to happen. And, you know, and I'm not saying that it was because I did the ritual or because I asked for something and got it. Nothing kind of that cut and dried. But on the other hand, you cannot help but notice the correspondence between these things. And to me, that is the beauty of working with correspondences that is the effect of magic and synchronicity. It's the idea that you are living in a rhyme. You are living in a poem. You are living, you know, at the crux of meaning and you don't have to notice it for it to be true. Wow. I never thought of the world that way, living in a rhyme, but that's, yeah, that explains my love for 90s hip hop, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Mel, did you have anything to add there about planetary magic? Do you do anything similar? One thing when Susie was speaking that came to mind, it's when I think of, you know, planets and astrology, the planets don't cause something to happen, but they're indicative of what's happening. Right. As above, so below, as within, so without. Right. But with planetary magic, there's more of a conscious intent to align yourself with those forces and perhaps to bring about causes. 
personally, my own practice of magic lately has been more around art as an act of magic because art is really channeling various forces and you can do that consciously something comes through you the muse you know the Mm -hmm. the spirit and you know spirit's just another word for for energy and it's through energy all things are moved but it's matter that holds that energy and holds all things and is filled by it so that planetary magic is is about it is about devotion and it but it's also about aligning yourself with those forces and becoming the matter that is filled by energy. I guess that's what I would have to say. <laughs> well, yeah, and that's a that's a great segue because I was gearing up to do a little musical interlude here because from I, the I lounge. To, yeah, yeah. I, I did to, <laughs> that's an inside joke. <laughs> the, the the audience won't get that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but. I wanted to talk about music and, and art as vehicles for magic because it's something that I think makes everybody a magician on some level or or, yes. or, or the, yes. the possibility to be one because anybody can sit down and write a story or paint a picture, draw something. If they learn enough, they can they can compose a song, you know? Like mm-hmm. these are very, very simple acts of magic that we are all capable of learning and then And we're and doing it all creating. the time. It's happening yeah. all around us all the time. Mm-hmm. It's not like, you know, that's the thing about that kind of drives me crazy about the whole concept of ceremonial magic, which, you know, which we get into, which we learn about because of its association with the Golden Dawn. But magic isn't just a thing that happens, you know, in a set aside time, in a set aside place, you know, just because you happen to sort of focus your intent at one particular moment. It's happening all the time. You know? yeah. You're creating things, you know, just by speaking. You're creating a word. Exactly. Well, that's that's exactly. what I think, too, about podcasting is that it, mm-hmm. this is a form of art. And it is, by that definition, then a form of magic. We're using language to express something, to create something. And to me, that's Mm -hmm. pretty magical. It certainly is. And, you know, in terms of music, I've been thinking about this a lot. And, you know, let me just give you a very small example, which is that, you know how when you get a song stuck in your head... You know, it's sort of like an earworm, and you and, oh and my it just God. yeah. So sorry. Go for it. But you know, it's like when you when you get that stuck in your head, it colors your mood. It colors everything you do. I, I I'm a person who has an earworm basically all the time. It's it's just the last thing I heard or whatever, and it just sticks there all the time. And when you have that, isn't that like? a talisman? Isn't that like a spell? Isn't that like something that encodes and crystallizes a mood or something and makes it perpetuate even when you don't mean to, you know, even at an unconscious level, it's still going. And I feel like when we have persistent patterns like that, that are set up in our brain, you know, we're doing magic, whether we like it or not. So funny that you brought up the earworm, because one (laughs) of the things I've been really thinking about lately is how, for me, Oftentimes, there'll be that song in your head in the background of your mind, and you might not even be aware of it, really. And then all of a sudden, if you pay attention to that, oftentimes, for me, that's the oracular moment Mm -hmm. where I realize that it's trying to tell me something. That if I look at the lyrics and or, or, you know, something about a memory associate or something, there was a message there that I might not even have been aware of unless I put it right into the light and looked at it. Right. You know, if you think about 
the process of, and let's just stay with music, I guess, but if you think about the process of composition, well, I guess whether it is music or writing or some other form of art, you know, when you think about how many moving parts there are to it and how many layers there are to a song or a story or a portrait, I mean, and then you think about the mm-hmm. effect that it has, not only on the creator of the piece while they're creating it, but then also on anyone who then interacts with it after exactly. it's created. Exactly. It, mm-hmm. you know, which is, I think, is what you're getting at with this with this earworm thing. You know, a good song, for example, if you think about too, you know, like what ceremonial magic could do or ritual magic, a good song could, for example, make the creator quite wealthy, you know, like literally transforming yes. their life. Yes, Although there yes, are plenty yes, of yes. bad songs nowadays that have done the same for their creators. Well, here's the thing, though. I, I don't think that, you know, bad or good, you know, that subjective judgment has anything to do with how powerful it is. Well, like, yeah. for example, here, so here's here's an example of something I was thinking about the other day, which is that, I'm, and, I, and I apologize because now you'll have it stuck in your head. You know that Whitney Houston song, The Greatest Love of All? Uh, shit. Why? <laughs> I'm so sorry, but literally, and I, I do not like it either. But you know, literally every time that song is mentioned, it gets stuck in my head for days. And you know, and I was, I was recently in Singapore seeing some family, and the girls, my little, my little nieces, were singing it. And I was thinking, what is it about that song that gets stuck in people's heads? What is it about that message that? perpetuates itself and seems to have this drive to replicate and multiply because <laughs> it does you know there's something about that rendition of that song that for some reason really gets to people and i don't know to me it has the smell of a magical act yeah like it or not <laughs> that's what i was getting at was that you know there's that whitney houston song could have made whitney houston's life very different after she created that mm-hmm. but then you know, when you hear something like that, that same song could also give a listener some great insight into their own life that could exactly. you know, give them the courage to make a decision that changes their life because that piece of music just spoke to them. And if that's not mm-hmm. magic, I don't know what is. Exactly. Exactly. There's something about it. I think we should point out, too, that, you know, one of the aspects of your podcast as well is you do make these musical note correspondences to each card and I think it's cool because, mm-hmm. Susie, you actually sing the notes as they come up in conversation. Yeah, I do. And I've been, you know, I've been, I did that for the majors. It's, it's not as obvious for the minors, but I've been, the last week, I've been kind of breaking my brains, trying to go back in time and figure out how music was perceived by the ancients. Because I, I have this crazy idea that I'd really like to be able to sing the Orphic hymns in the correct mode as was used by the ancient Greek. And it's it's absolutely bizarre and difficult and ramifying. I mean, I, I have a classical music, both a classics education and a classical music education. I went to Juilliard as a pianist as a young person. And I, you know, I know the modes, but the, the the modes that are used uh, that were used by the ancient Greeks were completely alien and completely different. So I've I've kind of gone down the wormhole and I'm I'm not completely out of it yet. <laughs> but um, but 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 wouldn't it be great though? I mean, wouldn't it be? There's that morphic resonance thing. Wouldn't it be great to be you know singing the same hymns in the same way in the same key across time with worshippers of millennia ago? And you know that would get a god's attention. I should think. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, Mel, I wanted to ask you something, too, uh, that's related to this same topic. But, you know, you had expressed this idea to me that properties of different artistic materials, along with the rites and the channeling and the geometric proportions, imbue Mm -hmm. art with certain spiritual properties and a quality of animation. That's a mouthful. What the hell does that mean? (laughs) 
Well, whether it's a, a song that becomes an earworm and, and resonates in your inner ear, or whether it's a an, a piece of art that you look at and it affects you, it has this you know numinous quality that somehow glows and grabs you. Either whether it's sound and whether you're composing a piece of music or a piece of art, it's all about harmony and harmonics and proportions. And if these are balanced in a certain way, it makes this piece of art a vehicle that's receptive to the force that's going to inhabit it and give it that luminous, numinous quality that we're, mm-hmm. that we're speaking of. Yeah. And, you know, and this is something that's a real hobby horse of mine, just the idea that, you know, when you put things together, for example, in film or in theater, you've got music, you've got color, you've got emotion, you've got, you know, basically a complete set of correspondences, you know, minus, minus maybe taste and smell. But, you know, when, when you do that, you are creating a giant spell, you know, just like if you look at any ritual work that people do, that's what they do. They create a little world, they create a little story, a little world within a world or a play. And by doing that, you invoke the spirit to come into it. And that's, to me, when when I go to see a play or music or performance of any kind, I get chills every time because these people are doing magical acts right in front of you. You know, they may not even realize it. They may not think that way, but they are inviting a particular spirit in. Those different elements that you mentioned all coming together as one, they mm-hmm. can be resonant or they can be dissonant. But mm-hmm. either way, it's creating the container for something that's also resonant or also dissonant to to, to come in and, and enliven it and animate it. Right, right. And that's why, you know, that's why art is so powerful. That's why people will stand, you know, simply by being bystanders or spectators will start weeping or will, you know, or will come home with some incredible insight that changes their life because something happened. Something was there and something happened. Yeah, and you know, to that point about art, that's something that, you know, I've always been drawn to more of the fictional side of life that I grew up around. You know, I've always been drawn to reading novels as opposed to nonfiction or watching films as opposed to documentaries. And, you know, as I've gotten older and I've started to read more nonfiction and, and watch more documentaries, I still feel more connected to fiction because I think on a subconscious level, perhaps, that it resonates with me more because I know the magical creative side of it now and, and mm-hmm. how powerful that is, not just on me as a as a participant in it, but on the creator themselves. So I'm glad that I right. found some like-minded people here that, that do <laughs> see art as magic. People create magic without realizing it all the time and that, you know, merely to be alive is a kind of magic itself, you know, but I think... So in terms of needing to use what you learn and absorb and produce something, create something out of it, I I do think you're on to something, but I think the form that it takes might be different for everybody, you know? I mean, creative acts are infinite in form and number, right? You know, whether it's even, you know, it could be it could be as simple as, you know, as helping a blind person across the road. That's a creative act as well. It's mm-hmm. it's I don't think that artistry is the only only right. Channel With just for a, it. a word or a look, you can transform someone's entire day. Right. In right. a moment. Yeah, I, right. I, I never thought of it that way. Okay. It's interesting. You know, I, I, I think about this because once upon a time I was uh, I used to go to a tarot reader in my very early 20s before I started doing tarot myself. And he was just looking at my, she was also an astrologer. She, she looked at my chart and she had some comment to say about my children. And, and she said that, you know, but your children are not just 
children, they could be creative acts of, as well. And, you know, that was a that was kind of mind expanding for me right there. And then, you know, in years since then, I've thought that creative act should probably be more broadly defined generally. And so that's kind of the place that I'm coming from, you know, the idea that it's possible to live a magical life without necessarily doing anything that looks from the outside like magic. And therefore, it's also possible to live a creative life without necessarily doing anything that looks from the outside, like creativity in the forms we expect to see. I don't know. It's just a speculation I have. Mel, did you want to add anything to that? I agree completely. It all comes <laughs> from within. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it doesn't have to look a certain way. You'll know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, so let's do a quick time hop here, and let's get away from correspondence just for a moment, and let's go back to antiquity, and let's talk about divination and oracular games as a whole. You know, where do we see the first mentions of these sorts of games and practices, and what were they exactly? The earliest one that I'm aware of is the act of dice or jacks or knuckle bones, they'd call it, because it was literally the knuckle bones of sheep or goats. You know, they called them astragaloi in Greek or tally in Latin. And they were so important to them that they were often included in their grave goods. Now, we think of dice as gambling and for gaming. And yes, they were definitely used for that. But they were also used as an oracle, mm. as well as many other games that we play to this day or that we play games that were originally based on those more ancient and unknown games. A lot of them had, as well as a, a gaming function, a function of divination. It was about placing yourself in the hands of the god, or you could say the hands of fate. And it could be as simple as who wins this game is, you know, favored by the gods, or it could even be that the game itself was used to, you know, look up a passage in a poem by a, a series of numbers or to derive a trigram of the mm -hmm. I Ching by the results of this game. Or, you know, there are many old games, board games, that the board itself was originally started as a diagram of the human liver for, you know, when people used to read livers. And then it <laughs> turned into a game eventually. So there's like a huge history of that. And even something as simple as a coin toss can mm -hmm. be a decision, a divination, you know. And I think that... You know, I mean, this kind of ties in with the idea of Hermes, Mercury Thoth being the god of knowledge, wisdom, language, and divination, all of these things, magic. You know, there's something about randomness, I think, that's very important to our ability to, to divine. You know, there's uh, that, that, that chaotic element is something that allows us to like scramble our cognition just enough to perceive something beyond it or something like that. There's this idea that Chaos, chaos, is the child of chronos, time, and ananke, necessity. And if you take that thought of chaos as being sort of, you know, something that inevitably results through time, and you take power over that and create the conditions for chaos to fill your perception, I think it allows you to gain insights that your normal, rational, you know, cause and effect mind might not be able to get to. Hmm. That idea that randomness has meaning. Mm -hmm. That when you, it's funny that you mentioned necessity because mm -hmm. even in that coin toss, there's this idea of fate and necessity, where fate is the birth of something and necessity brings about its death or the death of something. Mm -hmm. So a heads or a I tails, 
fate or necessity, birth and death, you know, like you're just placing you're giving meaning, allowing meaning to be given to random forces. Yeah. And just just to translate that into astrologies for fun for a second, you know, if you take time, that's like a Saturn type thing Saturn, and necessity yeah. that's kind of a fate Jupiter type thing yep. and you think about the interplay of Saturn and Jupiter of expansion and constraint and you know how that we stand suspended between those two forces at all times I don't know that's kind of interesting to think about you know the gaming divination with dice it was usually done with either four or five usually four and these mm-hmm. knuckle bones had mm-hmm. four sides so if you if they were using four dice with four sides that's 36 combinations what does that remind you of (laughs) the 36 seconds of decans right zodiac Mm -hmm. and then they Mm -hmm. would use the result to look up some sort of oracular statement on a list so i grew up playing poker and some other random card games you know like euchre and uh, i tried to learn bridge but i thought i was too young i was like fuck that i don't i don't want to learn bridge that's for old people But, (laughs) but i'm curious like what the connection is between modern playing cards or these these random card games and the historical practice of cardomancy and if this has any connection then also to tarot Well, first of all, you probably know, or maybe your listeners know, but you may know that tarot and playing cards are family. They're they're kindred, yeah? I didn't know that, but I don't Mm -hmm. know where the familial line begins. I think, and I'm doing this off the top of my head, I have a terrible head for dates, so I've probably looked this up 5,000 times, and I can't remember for sure, but originally playing cards came out of China and then out of Persia over the Silk Road in the 11th century or so, eventually making their way to the other end of the Silk Road. This is We're talking playing cards, right? So the four suits. And they weren't the four suits we know now, obviously. They were, I think, the uh, cards that the Persians had were called Mamluk cards. They had things like polo sticks, you know, things like that. Obviously not figurative art. And that's why if you look at a Marseille deck, you'll see curved swords, you know, the scimitars that they would use representationally on those. Anyway, so it wasn't until 14th, 15th century that uh, playing cards came to Europe. And I think it's around then that they diverged into playing cards and tarot cards. Um, so, so as you know, the four suits are basically, the four tarot suits are the same family, basically, as the four playing card suits. So cups, uh, sorry, we should do this in order. Wands are clubs. Cups are hearts. Spades are swords and pentacles or discs or diamonds. So basically the same idea. And then we have in, in tarot, we have the trumps as well, the 22 trumps. But uh, but they were not, tarot was not originally used for divination, right? It was, you know, a highfalutin game. And, uh, and it, only the sort of uh, noble houses of Italy could afford enough to put together a complete deck of cards and they were done as beautiful if you've ever seen the Visconti Sforza decks of the 15th century they're absolutely beautiful and they're you know gilded and they have for the court cards they have the you know the members of the family and it's really a luxury product but that eventually grew into the tarot that we use today i think the popularization of tarot as a sort of a common accessible game took place probably in the 16th century i think want to say 16th century with the Marseille decks or in that era when printing technology became available from the woodcuts that they originally used. And, you know, and then it became a game that was followed by uh, by its use in fortune telling. Now, you know, the use of cards either for playing or for fortune telling 
encountered all kinds of difficulties in a religious context. And whether the problem is, can you do divination or should you do divination are two separate problems, but they were equally problematic for the church. So, you know, the problems people have with gambling are of a family with the problems that they have with divination. Anyway, that's kind of off topic. But there is this long, long-standing tradition of cartomancy, of reading cards, reading playing cards, ordinary playing cards in a divinatory way. And that's separate from what we do in tarot, but not unrelated. So if I were to read playing cards right now, would I read them Mm -hmm. the same as tarot in terms of the two of spades corresponds to the two of swords and so on and so forth? Right. So the tradition of cardomancy, no. So they have their their own. In fact, hang on a sec. I have a book right here. Let me just grab it. Here's one, Fortune Telling Using Playing Cards by um, somebody who's a descendant of John Dee. This, uh, this book was given to me by our, by our friend in Australia. So these meanings, and there are a bunch of different sets of meanings in here, are quite different from, from what we use in tarot. For example, the Nine of Diamonds, you know, which for us would be the Nine of Pentacles, Venus and Virgo, quite a lovely card, you know, a card of the, you know, the woman in the garden with the bird or the Lord of, or gain. The Lord of gain. Exactly. So it's sort of a prosperous looking card of, of luck, really, luck in material resources. It's also called traditionally the Curse of Scotland. Traditionally in cardomancy, this is really a pretty dark card. It has connotations, it says, of danger, deceit, and unwanted complications. So, you know, it's, let's see, various explanations have been given for this dire title, which was first recorded in the 18th century. Uh, It was suggested that the back of the card was used to convey disastrous orders on the field of battle. Anyway, so the the traditions diverge. The, The meanings are not the same. And on the other hand, to me, if you are in a situation, and I've, I've been in this situation myself many times, without a tarot deck, and you want to use a playing card deck as a set of minors, 52 minors minus, is it the page? I think it's the, no, minus the knight, a knight or prince. Uh, you can do that. You know, I think it's, again, there's the, the, the perception of the reader is a crucial element in any divination. So if you want to do that, I think there's, it may not be quote unquote legitimate, but that doesn't mean it won't work. That's another thing too. It's it's sort of one of those messages I was talking about earlier when I was talking about the uh, the quartered cross and like maybe there were things that I missed. Like I've always been a card player. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I never mm-hmm. obviously when I was a kid when I was learning poker or euchre or you know games like that that I I never knew this world of tarot and and how it corresponded later you know like I know now. So that's it's very it's a very fascinating history to me and. Mm-hmm. I was wondering too, and Mel, maybe you could take this one here. I had John Michael Greer on the show a couple months back, and he was telling us how we could divine by drawing runes instead of cards. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if there's any other types of sortilage that we could do besides cards and besides runes too. There's an infinite, uh, (laughs) infinite number of things. I mean, there's a, a fun, I don't know, maybe fun's the wrong word. There's a game I play with myself where... For a moment or a certain stretch of time, I will treat every contact, everything that happens as a divination, as a message. So it could be as simple as seeing a, you know, a wrapper blow by you in the street and what's written Mm -hmm. on it or Mm -hmm. anything, a snatch of conversation overheard or, you know, just for that moment, you take whatever is given and you read it. For I think that's that's really key. I mean, I think that the hardest thing to teach 
when you're trying to teach someone to learn tarot or in divination generally is is to take that mindset where, and this is kind of what we talk about with the oracular moment, where things mean more than they appear to mean. And it's not that they are in and of themselves potent and powerful and, you know, and it's not, it's that you allow yourself to make the connections in your mind and you put yourself in that frame of mind and, and receive whatever message that portent can give you. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of bibliomancy uh, or books, I guess, you know, I, I want to ask you guys something. I know we have some biblical allusions to divination, I think particularly claromancy, you know, this this casting of lots. Mm, uh, yes. Although some, some do dis- <laughs> yeah, yeah, some do dispute whether that's divination in the Bible or simply like, you know, a, a command from God, I guess. But do you guys make anything of these biblical mentions in the Bible? Is there some truth in there to that, or or do you see that it, it is just sort of like a divine command? You know, again, divination, right? Let's look at the word. It's the connection with the divine, right? And I think that I'm not going to advocate one way or another for, you know, the legitimacy of something that shows up or doesn't show up in the Bible. However, I think that when you read about casting of lots, either in the Bible or in literature or in historical works of ancient time, what you're seeing is a universal desire, a universal a universal tendency to connect with something greater than yourself. And whether it is a command, whether it's something you initiate yourself, or whether it's something that somebody gave you permission to do in a sacred context, almost doesn't matter a lot to me, you know. I to me, it's all expressions of the same thing. Oh, that's that's a fair answer, yeah. And you know, it's not my wheelhouse either. <laughs> but <laughs> it's just something that you know, when you start to research divination, and you know, it's one of the first things you first mentions you you come across is that oh, well, they mentioned it's in the Bible, and then you know, there's a lot more depth to divination than just a mention in you know whatever books of the Bible that it's mentioned in. But I just want to throw that out there because I was curious about it, what you guys thought of it, and well, I mean, I think that the reason that it causes so much, you know, the question of divination causes so much trouble in a religious context is because of the problems of fate and free will and and how much agency you have in that equation and whether, you know, whether you can still be a moral person if everything is fated and whether you have access to the books of the future or not, you know, whether how much agency that gives you. I think that how you view the answers to those questions can depend a lot on what religious tradition you were raised in, right? You know, how much agency you have as a human being versus how versus how much mm-hmm. is ordained for you. Yeah. Mel, do you have a thought on, on fate versus free will here? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Small <boy>. question. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's... Do you have just one singular thought on fate versus free will? No, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> I mean, this, it's a large question. Sure. It's one of the big questions that I think no matter what sort of background you come from, it is one of those questions that... I think it could go back to to that fate and necessity thing where if you look at fate as being a birth, it's not, it's something that you can look forward to rather than, Oh, fate. I, you know, a death necessity, death is the necessity, you know, you know, and the thing is that regardless of what particular religious dogma you want to talk about, and it's, they're going to come down on in different directions on you know whether divination is possible and whether divination is okay personally i think that 
it's problematic to take a completely faded view of life and it's problematic to take a completely free choice view of life because right. I don't think either of those things is true. And I think that, you know, as I've said in other contexts, it's my personal view at the moment right now is that it's constructive to use the your illusion of free will to deal with your illusion of fate, <laughs> you know, mm. neither one being actually authentic. I'm curious then how this this term the oracular moment may tie in here. This is I think somebody mm-hmm. threw that out there a while ago. I think it was Mel mentioned that that. that, that well, and, yeah, we were talking about that earlier, and yeah. I think Susie brought up I think in our email conversation about what it is and what it isn't. Um, right, right. Having yeah. something to say about that, and we so we can we can start with that, I guess. So, uh, I mean, that that term, the first time I heard it was in a lecture by Yoav Bendov, who was, alas, he passed a couple years ago, but he was a really phenomenal master of the Marseille tarot and, uh, and a quantum physicist as well. And what he said about the oracular moment is that we set aside a moment in divination where everything is meaningful, right? And... We set it apart, and it's different from ordinary life, because if you lived your entire life looking for signs and and portents in every single second of the day, you'd go nuts. So the oracular moment is its own thing, where we sit down with the cards and with someone, and we have this presumption that we go into the place where you and I are connected, right? Where there's a, um, where we are continuous, where the illusion that we're separate selves is taken away and we see uh, and, and the illusion that there's separate selves and the illusion that there's self and other is taken away and that everything in the world is connected. Therefore, we are able to use the signs provided by the cards to read something meaningful into what's going on in our lives. And I think that as an oracle and Mel's had this experience too, you know, when you're when you're in the oracular moment and when you're reading the cards, you're not you. You're not your normal self. And a lot of the times the things you say, you won't retain, right? You won't you won't remember them because they come through you. They're not part of you. They're not a projection of your ego. They just come through you with the assumption that there's a larger unity, a larger connectedness that that you're merely a vehicle for. You know, I made that little joke in our email about the idea of, you know, how to abide. But for me, that (laughs) there's there's a tie in there. There really is, because to put yourself in that space is is, it's a very porous and, and receptive space where you are just accepting of what you're given to work with. You know, you can't control what cards come up and what you're going to say about them ahead of time. It just arises in the moment. And it's because you're in that state of abiding and being ready for it. Yeah, it's Mm -hmm. it's funny because it's a joke because I'm kind of obsessed with that movie, The Big Lebowski, and the dude (laughs) is one of my heroes. So, uh, you know, in the movie, he says he reveals to someone that he was one of the Seattle Seven and you know they they wrote this big manifesto in the in the 60s but if you read that it's really interesting because it's got some really cool quotes in there one of them actually kind of speaks to that because it says it's 
full spontaneous action access to present and past experiences, one which easily unites the fragmented parts of personal history, one which openly faces problems which are troubling and unresolved, one with an intuitive awareness of possibilities, an active sense of curiosity, and an ability and willingness to learn. Mm. So, and that's that's putting yourself in that space, you know? Yeah. And I think that, you know, this is a concept that 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 stretches across time. I mean, I think if you've ever read the Ode on a Grecian Urn, the the Keats poem, there's this concept of negative capability, right? Where you know, where you where you make yourself into a kind of a universal receiver at the moment. And to me, that is a state of mind that is not only necessary to achieve in divination, but beneficial to be in as a human being. You know, we do that in meditation as well, right? Definitely. And, you know, could we put ourselves in that space right now? Could we wrap up our conversation here by maybe doing a a one-card draw here and then taking the audience a little bit through the card like like you would on the show like you don't have to go as as in depth as you do on your podcast but maybe we could just do like a a, a brief correspondence teaser here and i do have a question prepared if you guys don't mind yeah sure sure so um mel do you want to draw sure i draw i've got your deck here do you have yours oh i can draw i have it i have it yeah you draw okay okay all right all right so i'm looking for certain types of relationships in my life now I'm quite picky these days on you know who I spend my time with. Mm-hmm. So my question is what what can I do to create the relationships that I'm looking for? And when you say relationships, uh what kind of relationships do you mean? Um, Are you talking I mean, about sort of general interpersonal relationships? Are you talking about, you know, romantic attachments or just sort of the way you relate to people in general? I think the latter, a general, not necessarily romantic, although you know that would be nice, mm-hmm. but more <laughs> more general interpersonal, yeah. Okay, so say your question one more time. What can I do to create the types of relationships that I'm looking for in my life? You got the Hierophant. Ooh, okay, I'm going to get mine out now. Oh, okay. here it is. Okay. All right, should we apply it first or should we do the breakdown first? Does I think matter? that the application can come out of the breakdown as we move along, probably. Yeah, huh? yeah, Perfect. yeah. Perfect. That's all good. Right. Hey, this is, I think it's a great card, first of all, for your question. Yeah, okay. I do too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So first of all, the Hierophant, number five in the sequence of Major Arcana, although the sixth card, because zero is the fool, and uh, associated with the sign of Taurus, right? It is, uh, which is ruled by Venus, the goddess of connection, which seems apt right away there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's also associated with the Hebrew letter Val, which is... You want to take over there? It's no? the nail. It means nail. Right. And what does a nail do? <laughs> it, binds. it binds. It binds things together. Hmm. It binds things together. It connects. Exactly. It connects things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also one of the letters of the divine name as well. Which is associated with the uh, concept of the, the prince or the holy guardian angel, which if you're familiar with that term is the you know internal divinity of oneself, I guess you could say. Right. Mm-hmm. And it lies on the path, on the tree of life, between, um, make sure I'm doing this right, I think it's between Chokma and Chesed, is that right? On the pillar of form? Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah. so so on the uh, pillar of force, sorry, uh, the right-hand pillar. Right, so, so which it's is bringing down the fire. Yeah, considered the masculine pillar. 
it's also one of the cards. Uh, oh, and Taurus is, is of course fixed Earth, right? The idea that uh, that that this is grounded in matter. Uh, we also, very importantly, I think, with this card is the concept of five the number five, because that is a number of spirit. You know, it's the four elements of matter plus spirit. Uh, In some contexts, it is a number of Venus. You know, seven is a number of Venus as well. But in some contexts, five is a number of Venus, which rules Taurus. And I think also in tarot in particular, we have this concept of the hierophant as the gate holder, Right. Or the gatekeeper. There's always the locks and the keys on the hierophant. He is a dweller on the threshold of a kind, a threshold guardian. And it's between he's a guardian between spirit and matter, you know, Mm -hmm. specifically. um, Mm -hmm. He's the great teacher, the the one that brings wisdom. Exactly. And he's he's the unlocker of secrets. And in fact, hierophant itself means the revealer of the sacred. Right. That's the etymology of the word. It seems like on some level that I need to maybe further or better connect with self in order to create these relationships that I'm looking for. Does that sound accurate? Sure. I mean, I think the first thing that I would go for in terms of application is an emphasis on what you have to offer the world as a teacher. I mean, the Hierophant often has a teacher function, a teacher role, uh, especially between as a translator or you know, as Mel, Mel was saying, an intermediary between of the sacred. And to me, there's a question of, you know, I think that in terms of inviting people into your life who who are good for you at this moment, the kind of uh, relationships you try to you want to cultivate right now, it has something to do with your interest in the spiritual. It has something to do with your ability to bring that to others and your ability to connect you know Mm -hmm. that function of the nail to connect things and also your ability to both teach and your willingness to be taught Mm, exactly will help build those relationships okay Mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely i mean i think that if you think of the hierophant he is in what we think of in mundane life as a pope figure he's a he's a translator who uh, spiritual teacher yeah takes the divine message and makes it comprehensible to ordinary folks. So that's kind of one of the things you do in your podcast, right? Yeah. And I find myself doing that a lot in my my current interpersonal relationships is that I, I feel like I get into this mode where I start to speak to people, you know, on these these intimate levels about, you know, just life circumstances, right? And I don't mm-hmm. necessarily feel like I'm consciously delivering whatever message that is coming out of my mouth, I feel like I am being spoken through because some of the things that I've told people turn out to be sort of prophetic, like, mm-hmm. a, like, like a precognitive sort of idea of what they may be coming to in their lives. And it, more often than mm-hmm. not, it turns out to be accurate. You know, it's not like a prediction necessarily, but it's more like, I know, I just know, and I'm telling you this from a place of knowing. Mm. Now, Mm -hmm. whether they're ready to accept or receive that message at that point in their lives is sort of irrelevant. But I just feel like I've been in that space since I was probably a teenager, where I've really sort of can trace my own, I can trace that back in my own life to some moments like that, you know, back to when I was younger, and it's it still continued to this day. So this is a pretty relevant card for that question, obviously, but also for me as a person and the journey I've been on to this point. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, I mean, one of the other names of, of Hierophant or Pope is Pontifex, right? The bridge maker. And that's mm-hmm. the role that you're fulfilling, 
right? Sometimes with tarot, I think it feels as though the statements are so obvious <laughs> and so so self-evident that that they're not useful in a way, but sometimes it's helpful to sort of say, what is it not? You know, what what is this? What is so what would you avoid if you were trying to invite this particular energy into your life and make connections with people? Well, you would probably avoid anything that separates you. So like, for example, you might not want to put yourself in a place of judgment. You might not want to to isolate yourself, you know, like a hermit from everyone else. You know, the, the emphasis, again, is on, on, the, on the connection, not on what makes you different. Yeah, that's, that's a good way to put it. What's the opposite of Taurus, Mel? It's a Scorpio. Scorpio. Sorry. Scorpio. Yeah, yeah sorry. I, sorry. I am a Scorpio, so ah, when you were talking right? about that, yeah. Right, it, and you're talking about relationships. That's on the, the axis. You're, you know, if you had a solar yeah. chart, that would be on your seventh house relationship axis. Yeah, the exact axis. opposite, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, so your job is not to do Scorpio things like the death card and or it's 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 uh, creating a contrast between the Scorpio energy of transforming and letting go and ending things uh, versus the, you know, this Taurus energy of, of connecting and fixing and uh, fixing things in matter and, you know, making that connection between matter and spirit. And Taurus is, you know, it's okay. the of the four fixed signs, it's the the sign of Earth. So I think another important thing that'll help you with connection is remaining grounded in your yeah. connection. It's a, just out of curiosity, I was thinking about the associated minors and uh, associated courts just for fun, which would be the five, six, and seven of discs and the princess. Uh, well, really the really the prince or knight, prince in Thoth, knight in Rider Waite Smith of discs, and that energy of steadiness. And I mean, the, the princess of discs, who is also has sort of a grounding in the center of she covers three signs, but the Taurus one is the center one. You know, there's that there is that steadiness and immovability that allows you to be an effective medium between the two worlds. So, yeah, and it's yeah. Um, it's funny too the the you know, the if you think about the four powers of the Sphinx that we talk about mm -hmm. a lot, the uh, one for the Earth or the Taurus, you know, sign would be to keep silent. Yeah, to listen. And so, the, yeah, so it's not only about, you know, you're transmitting this stuff, you say you have this connection and you're, you're giving them some wisdom that you have, but the reason you have that is because you can hear it. Your ability to receive, and isn't uh, there, there, I think there's some uh, connection between Taurus and the voice as well, if I remember, there's something about hearing yeah, it's the, and, it will of the five the senses. Throat, so yeah, the yeah, throat yeah. and the voice is, you know, about, about that speaking What's so there's, the, um, there's that whole polarity between when to speak and when to keep silent and receive that which needs to be spoken exactly what's the uh i'm trying to remember the hermetic title of the uh here the magus of the eternal gods oh yeah magus of the eternal gods oh, right wow. yeah <laughs> don't you feel special now <laughs> i don't know that seems like a lot of responsibility <laughs> well also um in terms of the five six and seven of discs as being associated with 
that to me, that has something to do with this being connected with your occupation. You know, I mean, six of discs for me personally always reads as a as a card of jobs or job opportunities. You know, this is the idea that, well, if you look at the, the sequence between, from five to six to seven of discs, all of them in Taurus, there's this sort of uh, transition from the five, the isolation of the five, you know, the sort of loneliness and desire for connection of the five to the the six where you where you're actually inviting that into your life and creating opportunities sometimes material opportunities for people and and then there's the seven of discs which is <laughs> which is its own thing but which is well, it talks a, about hard work you know that does. seven of discs is just mankind's eternal toil <laughs> well yeah know? and it's it's a card of stamina and being able to right. um, anticipate from your previous experiences the uh, the the hardships and forestall them or learn from them but all those miners, you know, they're all the material world. But you have mm -hmm. to remember that the Hierophant is that connection between the spiritual and the material world. Right. Right. Wow. And, wow. Uh, and that he yeah. has the key. Okay. He has the key. <laughs> yeah, this is this is fantastic. Like, and this is just a, a, a nice little snapshot of what you guys do on Fortune's Wheelhouse. I mean, you don't necessarily do this from a personal level, like you've done it for me here. But this, the way that you went through all the correspondences there and, and tied them back to the meaning of the card, I just love the approach to it. And I'm, I'm grateful that you guys were able to share that with us right now here. And uh, well, thank you, you for you, giving you us the chance. To. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You definitely gave me a lot to think about, and I hope our listeners are equally motivated to go out and, and learn some of this stuff on their own, but then also interact with you guys and your podcast in the future because it really is a valuable resource. I found it to be quite valuable anyways. So for those of the people that are interested, where can they find Fortune's Wheelhouse and better interact with you guys online? The best place to reach us is on our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fortune's Wheelhouse. And you know, what's so great about that is that it's because of patrons that we've been able to continue on in the podcast we originally you know had a sort of an agreement that we'd do the 22 major arcana and see what happens but the patrons really came through and uh, have funded us to the extent where we feel comfortable traveling on and right through the miners absolutely yeah and um i should thank you guys also for being one of the first to donate to our patreon campaign <laughs> here that was very sweet of yeah you guys to do that may we be the among the first of many well, selfishly, yes, I, I sure hope so. <laughs> so, but yeah, guys, this has been a fantastic chat. Yeah, Mel, you should give your uh, website where they can buy your decks. Oh, yeah. That's okay, well, Ryan. Um, Please do. Yeah, go ahead. I have a website that's purely a blog, but it does have a link to the store, and that one is www.tabulamundi.com. So, T A B U L A. M-U-N-D-I. And there is a link to the store there, but the store itself is Tarot Cart. T-A-R-O-T-C-A-R-T dot com. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we will link to those URLs in the show notes so people will be able to access them quite easily if they want to. So I guess for now, we're going to wrap this up here. Susie Chang, Mel Moline, Fortune's Wheelhouse, thank you guys so much for taking the time today. I really do appreciate it. Oh, you're so uh, welcome. Thanks, Ryan. And there it is, my word. Thanks again to Susie Chang and Mel Moline for their time and their valuable, valuable insights. Do yourselves a favor and check out Fortune's Wheelhouse and support the work they're doing. Links are in the show notes. 
You know, there was a lot planned for this conversation that we just didn't have time to get to, but I don't mind that so much because I already know Susie and Mel will be back again, whether it's collectively or individually. And how about that tarot draw of the Hierophant in response to the question I asked? It ceases to amaze me when I either do my own tarot draws or ask someone to do it for me, how accurate it is. I learn more and more about myself with each card, but I guess that's the point, right? And you know, this whole story that I'm telling through this podcast has taken on a life of its own. Fortune seems to have found a a voice through my microphone and is guiding the words spoken into it. That's a facet of life that I honestly resisted for many years, not allowing Fortune to work for me, because I wanted complete control over my life. I didn't want to work with it, but if I had to pull out one of the major themes of my life recently, it's been me coming to terms with fortune and working with it to enhance and enrich my experience here. But like Susie and Mel alluded to, you have to be careful that you're not turning every moment into the oracular moment. Sometimes things just happen and they don't necessarily have a deep esoteric meaning. I mean, yeah, maybe that shape on your morning toast does resemble the Virgin Mary, but it's also probably just melted butter. And speaking of melting some butter, my thanks to Brady over at the Hermetic Garden for becoming our newest patron. I don't know how melting butter applies here. Terrible segue. Either way, Brady has a new podcast called, yeah, you guessed it, Hermetic Garden, which you can find at hermetic.garden. It looks like he's only done one episode, and full disclosure, I haven't listened to it yet. But I did read a few blogs and enjoyed them, so Brady, thanks again for your support. Much love to you. And much love to each and every one of you out there listening to this right now. Whether you support the show with a dollar or a download, it's all appreciated and helps me get just a bit closer to escaping the underground bondage dungeon that is the 9 to 5 rat race and turning my attention to this full time. There's a long, long way to go before I can break those chains, but if you think conversations like what you just heard with Susie and Mel are worthwhile, if you find them informative or inspiring, please do consider helping me unlodge the corporate cock from my ass. And there's a few ways you can do that. You can subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice. You can rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us find more empathetic ear holes. The Patreon is ongoing over at patreon.com slash occulture with four levels of monetary support and rewards. Oculturepodcast.com slash donate has PayPal and cryptocurrency donation options if the recurring monthly thing ain't your thing. And I haven't sold one goddamn t-shirt in a month or so, and I want to get rid of them so I can get some fresh threads in stock. So check out oculturepodcast.com slash merch or hit the link to our Etsy shop in the show notes. I have about 10 shirts left and I'm tired of looking at them and once they're gone, they're gone for good. And you never know, one day they might be a collector's item worth hundreds or maybe even thousands of dollars. Okay, probably not, but you know, I'm doing my best here. Honestly, I hate marketing. Don't listen to my gratuitous pitches and pleads here. It's pathetic. I'm ashamed of myself. All this egotistical self-promotion and grandstanding. My apologies. Oh, and one more thing before I go. I've made some appearances on some other podcasts recently, so check those out. Cruising with Steak, Ascended Minds, My Alchemical Bromance, and Proud to be Profane. They're all in the Occulture feed here, and obviously you can find them in their respective feeds as well, with the exception of Proud to be Profane, which is just on YouTube at the moment. I also recorded a show recently with Ed Liu for his podcast Psychedelic Milk, but I have no idea if he'll even post it because it was... uh, Uh, as they say in my hood, a shit show. And speaking of shit shows, let's go ahead and uh, bring this one to a close. Until next time, you've just been initiated into a culture. I am Ryan Peverly reminding you to love yourself, think for yourself, and question authority.
Yeah.